Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the books and ideas podcast from the new online magazine at AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show, historian and Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Thomas Ricks on his new book, First Principles, what America's founders learned from the Greeks and Romans and how that shaped our country. Uh, Tom, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you. Good to be here. So congratulations on the new book. Uh, what did America's founders learn from the Greeks and Romans? Essentially, it was their political vocabulary. When they started designing this new country, they didn't have a lot of examples to look to. Most governments, most places had been monarchies. And so there were a few ancient republics and democracies, city-states, and especially the Roman Republic. And for them, the Roman Republic became the core political narrative of the entire history of the world. And for them, it had the urgency of front page news because they were looking and saying, how do we design this country? And also, what were the problems of republics? Why did they fail? And they decided that corruption by money, by luxury, and factionalism, that's what we would call partisanship, were the two great dangers to republics. And so they really sought to find ways around those problems. I mean, as you point out in the book, it, it is an amazing serendipity. There's a kind of crest of interest from the mid-18th century on the Greeks and Romans, but it's already on the wane by the 1790s and then completely runs out of steam. So really, it's a very specific moment in time for the revolution and for the Constitutional Convention. Well, I think what happened is they caused this decline in large part themselves. These were elites who designed the new country. These were the tiny percentage of white American males who went to college. Uh, and it was a tiny percentage of, of that class that, uh, that wrote the constitution. But they did take we the people seriously. Power was in the hands of the people. The people were sovereign. And once the people were handed that ball, they ran with it. And people in the 1790s, uh, the common man, the great unwashed, began to assume political power to get involved in politics. This is the decade in which political newspapers leap out and start criticizing the new government in a way that just shocked President John Adams. And so you kind of have a populism. The revolution succeeds much more than its uh, leaders had hoped. And the people are not that interested in classicism. They don't need that vocabulary. They've not been educated in it. Uh, and they say, very well, thank you. We'll take this and run with it now. And as you say, by the early 19th century, classicism was almost a joke. So before we look at what comes afterwards, let's look at what happens at the beginning. What was their education? What were the kind of things that they were reading specifically? Basically, their education came at the hands of tutors, many of them either recent college graduates from the handful of colleges in the United States or then the colonies, or especially from Scotland, from recent graduates of Glasgow and Edinburgh and St. Andrews. The reason for this was Scotland was a poor country, but because of its Presbyterianism, it believed that everybody should be able to read the Bible. And so even poor children in rural areas were given education. And because the Scottish universities were rather inexpensive compared to Oxford and Cambridge, poor kids could show up at the gates of those universities, get an education and graduate. Well, the question became, then what do they do? 
Many went into business and became bankers or tobacco factors. Many others hopped on tobacco ships and went to the American colonies and became tutors. So if you look at the background of Thomas Jefferson, of James Madison, uh, they have one or two or three very important Scottish teachers in their backgrounds. Uh, most notably was John Weatherspoon, the president of the College of New Jersey, which went on to become Princeton. Weatherspoon is a unique and interesting man, the first person brought from overseas to become president of an American college, a bit of a political radical, the only clergyman to sign the Declaration of Independence. Um, he's very politically active. And Princeton itself, under Weatherspoon, is a seedbed of radicalism. Uh, one historian wrote that it seethed with sedition or smoked with sedition. And young James Madison, interestingly, rather than go to William and Mary, as most young Virginians would, went up to Princeton. He was interested in politics and spends a lot of time at Princeton, even after he graduates, hangs around for another year. And he learns from John Weatherspoon, this radical Scottish professor and college president, uh, interesting things about politics. We actually have notes from lectures that Weatherspoon gave to the students. And one is about checks and balances something that became incredibly important in uh, Madison's work on the Constitution. He also learned about things like dispersal of power. Um, unlike the British system where members of parliament would sit in the executive cabinet, uh, they really tried to design a government in which powers were separated, in which you have co-equal branches of a federal government, executive, judicial, and legislative. And you also have power distributed in two houses of the legislature, and you also have many powers reserved for the states and not held by the federal government. So you've got an extraordinary dispersal of power. And this was a way that Madison and others thought you could prevent domination by one small group. Yeah, and it's one of the things that I really like about the book is that, that although this is a sensibility that many of them share, they don't all think about the ancients in the same way that Hamilton and Madison, for example, you know, although they write the bulk of the Federalist Papers together, uh, they have very different views on what the classics mean. And you point out about the difference between Washington and Madison, that Madison sees the classics as teaching us in some ways to embrace faction, uh, like the way that you use uh, a new new technological term that uh, in some ways something like gridlock is a bug. It, it's not a bug, it's a feature. So, you know, they're arguing about these things in real time and about what they mean for the new republic. Well, that's right. Not only do they have a very different view of the ancient world than we do. Uh, in their ancient world, Rome is in the foreground. Greece is a somewhat frivolous civilization in the background. Uh, these Figures from ancient Greece, Cato, Cicero, Caesar, uh, they had the attention that today we would give to rock stars, movie stars, and sports stars. These were people that they all understood, they all discussed, and all talked about. But each of them, as, as you indicate, uh, selects different aspects. So George Washington, though fairly well uneducated, uh, doesn't read Latin or Greek, doesn't read French or German, never travels to Europe like many of the others did. Uh, George Washington, though his favorite play is Cato, a very popular play in the, 19th, in the 18th century. He really comes to emulate Cato, the Roman politician uh, noted for his frugality, 
his judgment, his reserve, and his wisdom, um, and his, his public-mindedness, a man who would rather have the state do well than have himself do well. And Washington is looking for a model. He has an explosive volcanic temper. He needs to learn how to contain it. And he really tries to imitate Cato, as do many other people, to, to be a public-minded man of honor, a public man. Uh, John Adams, by contrast, really focuses on Cicero, another Roman politician, but much more voluble, rather vain, uh, but also serves his country. Uh, Trollope, who is both a novelist and a historian, wrote of uh, Cicero that he loved to talk about his country and he loved to talk about himself. Unfortunately, he did them both about equally. Uh, Adams, interestingly, is as vain as Cicero. Uh, he does a terrific job of getting the revolution rolling and then a lousy job many years later as president. Uh, Jefferson, Jefferson is the exception here. He's not really a Roman. He's consciously more interested in the Greeks. He reads more of the Greeks. And he's also quite fond of Athens, which is exceptional. And he takes his philosophical uh, direction not from the Stoics, as so many other of the colonials did, but from Epicurus, the Greek philosopher who believed that the purpose of life was the pursuit of happiness and the avoidance of pain. And once you get that, suddenly a lot of Jefferson's life becomes more understandable, especially his huge hypocrisy. I would say of all the founders, you find the, I find the greatest gap between words and actions in Jefferson. And then as you say, Madison uh, comes along almost a member of another generation along with Hamilton, uh, looks at the ancient world really as a political scientist. And before the writing of the Constitution, spends four years studying ancient Greek and history of the city-states and Roman history. He actually sends letters to Thomas Jefferson, who's in Paris at the time, requesting trunk loads of books on ancient history. I mean, it's really interesting that, I mean, you mentioned Cato and Cicero. I think perhaps the, the Catalinian conspiracy is one of the things that gets mentioned the most in the book. But as you also point out, it's fascinating what they don't reference. Only John Adams, for example, mentions Spartacus, uh, who led the slave revolt. And of course, of the first seven presidents, only he and his son, John Quincy Adams, uh, did not own slaves. So it kind of, in some ways, they're very selective about what they're actually reading and what they're applying. Well, this is the great problem. They don't know what to do about slavery. Uh, they flatter themselves that just as the ancients hold slaves, so do they, not knowing or perhaps not caring that ancient Roman slavery tended to be far more benign than American slavery. Foremost, ancient slavery was not race-based. Anybody of any color could be a slave in the ancient world, and people could be freed and rise to great power and office. Uh, by law, the sons of freed slaves could hold public office. By contrast, in the United States, we didn't see um, black people start holding much public office until the late 1960s, early 1970s, within my lifetime. A, a brief period, of course, after the Civil War, which but that ended with a wave of terrorism, a, a public black holder of black people holding office back then. Uh, slavery is such a problem for them. I think I don't think they realize how much of a problem it was. 
They knew that if there was a whiff of abolitionism in the Constitution, that South Carolina and Georgia would withdraw. They were informed of that as they wrote the Constitution. And they were terrified of that because if South Carolina and Georgia were true, they weren't very big. They would have to rely on foreign powers for help, for defense, for aid. And that meant that Britain, France, and Spain would again have a toehold next to the colonies. So they really didn't want that to happen. But they wind up with this compromise under which they make slavery part of the fundamental law of the land. As a friend of mine says, slavery was not a stain on the fabric of America. It was woven into the fabric of America. And we are still pulling that out of our fabric. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing that on the one hand, you have this incredible erudition uh, by someone like Thomas Jefferson. And then, you know, when we think about that compromise, very often it's presented as realpolitik. It was necessary to get the Constitution through. And then you um, quote uh, Jefferson at one point saying that he's very happy because he's growing enough clover on the farm to feed all my animals except my Negroes. And as you point out, it's the kind of stomach-churning comment that brings us up short and forces us to confront a very different side to the erudite Thomas Jefferson. Especially with Jefferson, there's there's such a discrepancy between what he writes and what's going on around him. Uh, I'm glad you noticed that line about feeding the animals. Another thing that shocked me was uh, him having boys, young boys, whipped to make them more productive in his little nail factory that uh, was profitable for him. Yet going on at great length about human happiness and all, all people being created equal. Uh, I've got to credit Jefferson for two things, the Declaration of Independence and his first inaugural address. The Declaration alone makes him great in American history. That document is so important for us. It sets the aspirations for the nation for hundreds of years. That said, though, uh, I think Thomas Jefferson has an enormously overinflated reputation for pretty much everything else. Yeah, it's really interesting that that is also seems to me to be one of the reasons why there's a rejection of classicism that comes later. That, uh, for example, you talk about William Manning, a farmer and, and writer from Massachusetts, who complains about the elites because they view ordinary people and the, those around them with contempt. They can't bear to be on a level with their fellow creatures, uh, he writes. I mean, it, it was interesting because, it, you know, in many ways, this has a kind of a resonance with a lot of the debates that uh, we have today. I mean, for example, you know, does Jefferson see people as deplorables? I think he does. Uh, Remember, the world of Washington and Jefferson uh, is is not a world in which the great unwashed have a large political voice. That's really the story of the 1790s. And what's shocking is how quickly the great unwashed, the people, uh, assert their sovereignty. They take that ball and they run with it and change the country radically in the following 15 years. John Adams, poor John Adams, has a difficult job. He succeeds George Washington as president in 1797. He's horrified by this outbreak of politics, uh, of political newspapers, and of local people asserting political um, views and getting up and speaking about them. but guess what? That's what America was becoming. And Adams tries to stop it, starts throwing newspaper editors in jail, and in turn, 
becomes America's first one-term president. He's thrown out of office. He's quite bitter about it. Uh, he's shocked by it. He goes home and sulks about it for, for years upon years. Uh, but to his credit, he does turn over power to Thomas Jefferson in March of 1801. And that becomes the norm in America that when you lose, you turn over power to the opposition, if not gracefully, at least peacefully. Uh, unfortunately, right now, we have a president who likes to violate norms, and he's violating that one. I mean, it's, it's one of the interesting things as well, uh, how these figures who venerated the Greeks and Romans and used them kind of by uh, later generations actually uh, really don't like the uh, that particular idea. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, the great story that you have of Davy Crockett, uh, who, when he sees a statue of George Washington, complains that they have a Roman gown on him when he was an American. It just ain't right, uh, Davy Crockett uh, says. So there, there, there is this sense that in some ways those who come afterwards want to reject the ideas that the founders themselves used and want to see them as authentically American? I think they very much want to reject that world. Um, these are not the people like Davy Crockett, they don't read Latin and Greek, and they are asserting themselves to be of equal standing in society. And that was a shock. Um, the, the definition of what an American was and what a gentleman was was changing radically. And uh, classicism goes from being the dominant sort of outlook to being ridiculed in just 30 or 40 years. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that uh, Tocqueville notices that Americans by the 1830s had moved on from those classical ideals. What they want to hear about is themselves, he writes. Well, also, he failed classics as a young man. <laughs> But 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 he does kind of get to something, doesn't he? That that I, I I suppose in some ways, you know, what now we would describe as American exceptionalism. You have the growth of American exceptionalism. You also have the Industrial Revolution coming along. You have the widespread growth of literacy, but it's not literacy in foreign languages. It's literacy in the English language itself, and you have the rise of newspapers for the common man, and basically the common man, at least the common white male uh, becomes extraordinarily powerful in his own sense in his role in society. I mean, it is interesting how the founders themselves very much worried about this kind of thing at the end of their life. The correspondence between uh, Adams and Jefferson, for example, often uh, takes this backwards and forwards. The, the, in, and, and, and as well, the, the idea that somehow the, what has happened in America may mirror what happened in the French Revolution. So they're constantly worried about the collapse of the Republic. I suppose that's one of the reasons why the founders so often go back to Catiline, to Cicero, to Julius Caesar, because they want to understand why the Roman Republic collapsed. They do very much, but uh, after they write the Constitution, the 1790s gives them the horrible example of the French Republic. You know, you have the French Revolution, you have this Republic established that very quickly becomes a terroristic dictatorship and finally, uh, a new monarch takes over. So, you know, oh my God, the other republic that has just come out of the West collapses in their view. Also in America, with the passage of time, 
the people who were part of that founding generation by the 1820s and 1830s are smelling the possibility of civil war. The fuse seems to be lit. And so Jefferson is horrified by the Missouri Compromise in 1820, believing that the country is already starting to separate politically over the issue of slavery. James Madison, almost the last thing he writes to the public is, whatever you do, hold the union together. But the problem was the founders themselves had kind of set up this problem. The Civil War really almost is inevitable when you look at the laydown of the Constitution and the tensions it introduces into the country. Yeah, it's interesting that um, a quote that I hadn't seen before, but which you use in the book, that kind of in, in some ways Jefferson actually kind of has a sense of this happening. I mean, he he looks at the Republic, he fears that it might break down into some kind of Athenian confederacy, that there might be a new Peloponnesian war that would be needed to settle the matter. I mean, that sounds an awful lot like succession, uh, secession uh, and civil war to me. Well, remember also that they were very conscious, even from the beginning, that America was an experiment and remained one. So Washington talks about that in his first inaugural address. The first president stands up and in his first words says, this thing is an experiment, meaning it could go wrong, it could fail. And that thought continues. I think it was held by all of them. And it continues, I think, as a key theme in American history. Even now, just the other day, I was reading an interview with Barack Obama in which he referred to America as an experiment in multi-ethnic, multicultural democracy. And if you have that sense, though, that America is an experiment, you sense the fragility, the possible dangers, but you can also have the sense that this is something that is living and that we are responsible for and we can change. I think one thing the founders would be shocked by is how little we've amended the Constitution, especially in the last 100 years. Remember, they wrote that thing to be amended, as they called it, amendments, to be changed. I think they would say, you know, you really need to change this thing more. You have these gigantic states like California that only have two senators in states with tiny populations like Wyoming that have an equal number of senators. You could change that. Remember, they made this stuff up on hot afternoons in Philadelphia one summer, and then they went out for beer. They were just making this stuff up, and we can make it up too. We can change it and fix it. I mean, it is one of the the interesting things that's very striking reading this book that, I mean, we hear so often today that, oh, we live in the worst of times, that politics has never been so bad. Uh, this, this, this book seems to imply that that is not the case, partly because uh, all the founders seem to think the same thing at the time. I mean, Jefferson, for example, you have saying that there have been three total collapses of public virtue in history after the death of Alexander the Great, after the death of Julius Caesar and his own age. So it's almost as if we always tend to think that the world is going to hell in a handcar, whichever generation we're part of. I, I think we do. And I think we do, especially these days, because people don't know their history as well as they used to. Uh, for example, when people complain about the uh, dislocation, the disruptive effect of social media, I think it is small compared to the disruptive effect of political newspapers in the 1790s in the United States. That was a rollicking time, and it wasn't clear where this country was going. Social media is just sort of a buzzing on, on, the, on the margin compared to that. 
likewise, I think in the 19th century, they had far more general disruptive changes in society. Sure, we have the information revolution, but basically that has just made for a faster industrial revolution. In the 19th century, you had the invention of the railroad so you could move goods and people faster than a horse steadily over land for the first time in history. You had the telegraph, so suddenly information could shoot around the world very quickly. All the internet is, is a faster, more colorful telegraph system. And it, it does seem to imply that those institutions, as you say, that they constructed on hot afternoons uh, in Philadelphia and followed up with conversations over a beer, that those institutions have proved themselves to be remarkably resilient and indeed are continuing to show themselves to be remarkably resilient in these uh, very difficult uh, post-election days that we're, we're experiencing now. Yeah, I think they'd be very pleased to see how resilient the institutions are. When you've seen Donald Trump stymied, it's because he has stubbed his toe on the Constitution. When he finds out, to his surprise, that Nancy Pelosi doesn't work for him, and in fact looks upon herself as a leader of a co-equal branch of government. Or when Trump finds out that even though he appointed several members of the Supreme Court, they will disagree with him if they feel like it, that these are co-equal branches of government. So the resiliency of the Constitution has been impressive. Where, where Trump has been much more successful is when he goes after norms, when he violates what we thought were kind of laws, but it just turned out to be customary accepted behavior. So the way that Washington very consciously established how a president should behave with reserve, with distance, and then step down after two terms. Um, the way that John Adams, though bitter about it, turned over power when he was rejected by the people as president. Um, the, the idea that you have these normal transitions from one president to another, Trump is violating all that. And I think we're probably going to have to consider whether some of what we thought of as norms have to be given more rigor and made laws. I mean, it's interesting, and, and perhaps this is a, a good final question for you, Tom, That because it was a question that the founders themselves often ask themselves, it echoes Cicero's speech after the uh, Catiline conspiracy. What kind of country do you think that we've become? I think, and I hope the founders would say, that we've lasted a long time, but we are in danger now of losing hold on our democracy and becoming an oligarchy. An oligarchy with democratic trappings, but nonetheless, a country run by the rich, for, of the rich, by the rich, and for the rich. And I think the founders would be a little bit shocked that we've let the dollar become more important than the vote, that we've allowed money, the money of rich people, to dominate politics. And they would say, you have fallen down on the job, you are failing the American experiment, and you need to do something. So the book is First Principles, What America's Founders Learned from the Greeks and Romans and How That Shaped Our Country. It's written by my guest, Thomas Ricks, and published by HarperCollins, price $29.99. Uh, but for now, Tom, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. You're welcome. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damian Rusick. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.